This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Jacob Bertrand, here mm-hmm. we are in the mm-hmm. middle of Lent as we continue with our Back to Belief series. But before getting into our Back to Belief series, anything during the season of Lent which has given you occasion to believe or not to believe? It can be a believing or not believing of your choice. Something really to just get these belief juices flowing, as it were. Uh, what a question. Good job on the question. <laughs> Thank you. Good for you. Good for you. Thank uh, you. Yeah. It's, um, well, I might have said on the podcast before on a different episode uh, that I don't really like Lent. Lent's tough for me. So that's, I think, an occasion to not believe that it'll ever ever be over, but because I'm surviving, (laughs) that I can, by God's grace, I can believe that it will be over soon. Um, So that's not terribly, like, spiritually inspiring or otherwise, Uh, but it's kind of where I am right now. It's it's that, like, that mid-Lent lull, you know? So I'm kind of, like, melancholic about it all. Hey. Well, um... Who is it that says, many people say, although I was recently sent a sticker by a Nashville Dominican who attributed this quotation to St. John Paul II, I would get Mm. that sticker out, except I would probably spend like the next 45 seconds looking for it while shuffling papers to the dismay of all listeners. Um, But the thing that I was going to say, and now muddled by the fact that I was attributing it to someone, is only the truth has grace or only the truth bears grace. I've heard that attributed to St. John Paul II. I've heard it attributed to Father Paul Murray, OP of the Irish province. I've heard it attributed to Jesus in that apocryphal yeah. work, the gospel of Jesus. Uh, no, um, but but only the truth has grace. So here on God's Plenty, we like to say true things. Even if pious things might sound more consoling at the outset, they don't really bear up under the weight of real life if you just, uh, if you just say the pious things. So if we're going to say pious things, those pious things are going to be underwritten by great suffering and friendship battle. So uh, this is our life. All right. Um, in this episode... We're going to talk about... Wait, you're not going to answer? Oh, right. I should probably respond to the question. Since I don't just set traps, I do things on equal footing. What do I believe in slash not believe in? Oh, so I I recently went, and I was just recounting this to you, to a mountain destination called the Grand Saint Bernard, which is in a pass between the canton of Valais and then the Italian region of Valle d'Osta, if I can pronounce something remotely Italian, which I can't. So... um. It's like one of the places where it's easiest to get through the Alps because the Alps are effectively a wall. And in some of that wall, there are places which are less terrible. And so there's this one has been marked out as a, as a good pass. And so they have like a road that goes through it, which is entirely snowed over for most of the winter, which is to say for like nine months of the year. Um, but right at the high point of the pass, there's a religious community called the Canons of the Grand Saint Bernard, which run a retreat center effectively. So I went there for, for a weekend retreat. And um, it was it was in a certain sense like a kind of terrible, numinous experience. Listeners have become accustomed to me recounting stories of almost dying while hiking because it seems that that's all I do while in the mountains. Mm. Um, on this occasion, there were plenty of people and there weren't actually like situations in which I felt I was going to die. But the visibility was less than 50 meters. And I was also passing by like, you know, hills 
to my left and to my right, which are known for producing incredible avalanches. Like one of them is called the Combe de la Mort, which means like the little hill of death. <laughs> so at a certain point, I just couldn't see that far in front of me. And I could tell that this thing that I was approaching was sheerer than, mm, I don't know, than descents that I am accustomed to traverse while wearing snowshoes. And it caused me much, you know, fear and trembling. But then other people will pass by and then they took this other route and I followed them and it ended up being fine. So I believed yet more in the human community, which conducts us through a kind of corporate prudence to good decision-making, which is to say, I trust myself even less to make good hiking decisions, even though by this point in my life, I should know better, but it was a great retreat. Um, hmm. So speaking of imprudence, I wrote a book about the opposite, which yeah, life is so crazy. So in this episode, we're going to talk about belief, uh, specifically belief in the church. So we have some things that we want to suss through describing the nature of the church her holiness or sanctity, but maybe first we could talk about it as an object of belief. When we pose it in those terms, like I believe in the church, which we say in the creed, what, like, why do we have to believe in the church? I mean, it seems like it's, it's visible. It seems like it's evident. Is it something that requires of us faith? Is it something that requires of us a kind of deeper engagement. Where do you think that we start when it comes to to believing in the church? Yeah, I think it's it's not what, well, it's not in the negative or the counter examples that you just gave in the sense of like believing that a church building exists or that the institution of the church exists, because as you just said, we can see them. So um, seeing is believing, I guess, right? <laughs> That's what they say. So, so you, you have that going for you. Um, but so I guess it, it kind of like begs the question, well, there has to be something else that we're talking about when we profess in the creed, I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, and I think we should start by talking about the church as we can talk about the church in different ways, but the church as as a sort of uh, what would we say, like holy structure is the church as more than just a human institution or like a physical structure. Um, and we describe this in, in different ways, but perhaps a way to start or one of them to, to start with is the church as the body of Christ or uh, yeah, we'll start with that. I was going to say a different one as the body of Christ. We can look back through the scriptures, um, particularly the prophets, uh, where a lot of this sort of prophetic imagery begins about our Lord's relationship with his people. Uh, most especially the, the sort of nuptial imagery of of marriage. Now I'm delving into the second one, but that's all right. But um, of of marriage and the union that God has established through the covenants uh, throughout throughout history with His chosen people. We see in the new covenant, the the in the dispensation, the Christian dispensation, the final covenant instituted by Christ. That Christ's sort of Christ is his body is the church is what we believe right so that that the church is is made up of of a sort of spiritual reality that is uh, the body of christ where christ is the head um so i think we can look at the the church as again institution building but we're really the church in a sort of way i don't know if i agree you can correct me this if this is wrong but those things are kind of sacramental in its nature that the the physical signs point to a greater spiritual spiritual reality that exists um so at least we can start there uh in talking about and talking about why believe in the church yeah no i think a, a lot of times when we describe the church, we start with a kind of counter-reformation definition of the church. And when it comes to definitions of the church, the definition of St. Robert Bellarmine is 
one of the more widely diffused where he says, all right, where you've got the faith, where you've got the sacraments, where you've got governance, there you have the church. But with each of those things, the faith can sometimes be in that definition reduced to profession of, you know, these articles as described in creedal statements. And then the sacraments can kind of be reduced to like, all right, these seven sacraments, if you have all of them in their validity, then you've got, you know, you got the fullness thereof. And then this governance, namely you have apostolic succession, you know, so you have the Pope, you have the bishops, you have validly ordained ministers of the church, right? People say like, all right, where you have these things all together, there you have the church. But what kind of gets lost in that conversation are these rich, like you said, scriptural themes, patristic themes, medieval themes, which describe the church as something that is at once identifiable by these visible marks, but which has, what would you say, a more, uh, yeah, it, it has a nature which surpasses them or which not transcends them, but which can be experienced or which can be delved into by means of them, maybe. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned this, this, this image of the body of Christ, you mentioned, uh, this further image of the church as the bride of Christ, but certainly we can, yeah, let's, let's start with that relationship between the church and Christ. Um, and maybe we could think about it in terms of some of the scriptural themes that we've adduced and then, um, the way that's anticipated in the old Testament and described in the new. So how about we start first with the body of Christ? You have this image in the old Testament scriptures of the kind of people of Israel at the foot of Sinai who are called together, this kind of kahal, I think is the Hebrew word, which we learned in our ecclesiology class from a Louis Boyer reading. Um, and then from that, you know, you have this, this notion, the Greek notion of ecclesia, that the people who are called out, and certainly in the, in the Old Testament, that solidifies around this image of the people of God. And in the New Testament, there is the sense that this people isn't just apart from their God, but this people is, is bound up with their God, not in a way that makes things kind of creepy and pantheistic, but in the sense that this people is, is Christ's very body. And so that image uh, is, is present throughout St. Paul's letters in a particular way. I don't know, maybe if yeah, you have particular go-to homiletic points when it comes to the body of Christ, what does it matter that, that Christ is the head and we are his members? Um, like where, where does that cash out for us as an object of belief and how does that play itself out in, in our practice? Yeah, well, I think I think principally in in a sense of of unity of uh, not not a sort of horizontal unity though that's important that there's unity in the church but a more of a a vertical unity of being united to God being incorporated into into the into the divine life of the Trinity and you know we we become shares in God's life through through baptism at least on you know on the side of of heaven and so too through baptism are we incorporated into that the body that that is the church um so i think there the 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 sort of principle of of being united of being um part of of who if we can say that part of who God is part of what God is doing um through through the graces that are dispensed through the church we you know there's this kind of relationship of we're united to the church like by the or to christ and to the church by the church too so there's this sort of um i don't know what you would call that but the reality of unity of being drawn into that and into who christ is um again not as father gregory said not as a pantheistic kind of you know becoming one being but you know united to to him as his sons and, and daughters through the sac through the sacramental effects of particularly baptism there and one thing that i love about this particular image is that you see it in peculiar fashion like in our lord's sacred humanity and then it resonates through 
or from his sacred humanity into the life of the church. So oftentimes when, um, when people who study St. Thomas talk about the church, they base it off St. Thomas's treatment of the grace of Christ. So St. Thomas observes grace at work in Christ in three ways, three principal ways. One is the grace of union, which is the grace whereby his sacred humanity is assumed by a divine person. So there's a kind of created grace there, which accounts for the fact that, that this human nature is assumed been, or is assumed by this divine person. And from that grace, there originates the grace that, that fills Christ's soul and his every faculty, which we would call his habitual grace. And then that habitual grace pours forth into the life of the church. And St. Thomas calls that his capital grace, capital there coming from the word, the Latin word caput, which just means head. So it's the, it's the grace of the head, which spills into the life of the church. And he talks about Christ as the head in, in, a, in a variety of different senses. Like he is principal, um, he is perfect. He is, you know, the one who governs over, but in a more basic sense, it's just, there's an order to grace that grace issues from God through the sacred humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that that sacred humanity is in a certain sense, perpetuated in the life of the church insofar as the church becomes that place in which the grace of Christ fills the members. Um, it's the setting in which, and so while it's customary to talk about the sacred humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ as a kind of instrument of the Godhead or as an instrument of the second person of the most blessed Trinity, we can speak about the church in similar terms. So like our Lord's sacred humanity is the conjoined instrument. And then one Thomistic author uh, who is still alive, um, he's, he calls the church the adjunct instrument. And you can think there of, you know, whatever, like an adjunct professor might kind of stand in for or assume the place of. So, so the church kind of makes present the humanity of Christ and gives us a way by which to embrace that humanity and in embracing that humanity to come to a fuller embrace of God. Okay, so then maybe from there, passing on to a description of the church as the bride of Christ, we have, um, yeah, we have different uh, scriptural passages that come to mind, uh, one of which is the great description of marriage in Ephesians 5, where the, the love of a man and a woman is described in terms of the love of Christ and the church. Um, this is you know, something that comes up when you're preaching at weddings. This is something that certainly comes up in marriage prep. Uh, when you're trying to get two people who have just come to your church because it has a long aisle and the per like the pictures will look pretty to actually care something about the sacrifice which they render to each other in the context of their bond. Um, but thinking about the church as the bride of Christ, uh, where do we where do we start here? Or where do we go from here? Yeah, they, I mean, we could look through, especially some of the older or the minor prophets, uh, where you get this sort of covenant imagery beginning as as a way by which. Um, the Lord is trying to open the Israelites' minds to what the relationship is between between God and his people. You know, so God, through his prophets, speaks in this sort of nuptial, this wedding, uh, husband, wife, bride, bridegroom imagery to to elicit the, the reality of what's happening. Um, but uh, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, when we talk about the nuptial relationship of Christ, the bride as as or sorry, the church is the bride of Christ. It all comes down to the the one sort of central theme of charity, and and that's the the, the sacrifice of of self for another. Um, and why is Christ the like exemplar? Well, simply because he well first he's God, but also because he lays down his life perfectly for for us, for his body, the church, um, as a husband does or a bridegroom does for the bride to give himself totally for um 
for the other, for the beloved, for the one for whom his, you know, his heart longs, we could, we could say. So this, this nuptial imagery, yeah, it begins in, in the prophets and is brought to like fulfillment in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And as Father Gregory mentioned, St. Paul speaks about this, particularly in his letter to the Ephesians. Um, but we see this throughout and then that translates obviously over into marriage between, between a man and a woman. Um, but we ought to think of, of Christ and the church in this same sort of relationship that Christ, the bridegroom laid down his life for us, the members of, of his church. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I'll at least say about that. Yeah. Now I love the, the kind of imagery that you describe that we have from the prophets. And I think it gives us a context in which to kind of re-envision our moral lives in the context of the church. Sometimes we think of the church as just uh, supplying us with many rules with which to accuse our behavior of not being up to snuff. Um, that's a complicated way to think of the church as like, yeah, the great accuser insofar as she just makes an impossible standard and then holds us to it. But truth be told, uh, when you think about it in terms of a marriage with the Lord, that we as the members of the body of Christ, as members of his church, are in a committed relationship with him, which committed relationship seeks to grow by its own organic law, you know, by, by the grace which Christ pours into it. And then if you sin against it, right, you sin against your bridegroom, you sin against your beloved. So whatever Israel, you know, whatever sin Israel committed in the Old Testament, whether it be of like murder or apostasy or failing to attend to the poor, the, the, the widow and the orphan or whomever it might be, it's often likened to the sin of adultery, right? It's kind of like going after other gods as if those other gods could supply for the love which they as a people need. Uh, when truth be told, that love comes from God and from God alone. So I think that for us as kind of we re-envision our moral lives, not just as a series of do's and don'ts, but rather as a relationship which we want to grow, you know, by its own organic law, by our consent and cooperation to that organic law, um, then it then it helps us, right, to not think of it so much as a great accuser, but to think about it as a great lover or as the great beloved who responds to her lover. W with that, um, my mind kind of tends in a somewhat more practical direction. Certainly in you know, the 21st century, in the age of um, social media and the age of instantaneous reactions to every promulgation of the church and of her pastors, it's very easy nowadays to be very critical of the church and certainly, you know, um, all of us indulge in it in one way, shape or form. But the question is, all right, on account of the fact that, that Christ is our bridegroom, we, the church, are his bride, that we pertain to that church as many members, that there's something about it that is of divine institution and that we believe in it. How does that, you know, like, how does that shape the way in which we talk about the church, the way in which we criticize the church, the way in which we love the church into a better version of herself, to take some Matthew Kelly language? Uh, what would you say, practically speaking, are some good ground rules for how we host these conversations and then introduce other people into it. Yeah, I think it's the it's super easy to um, forget or not keep uh, at the fore of our thoughts about the church what we've just been talking about. You know, the the sort of spiritual realities of the church as as the bridegroom of Christ and as the body of Christ, um, because so often before us, we see what's, yeah, so often we see what's before us. And that's, you know, what we started to, the, at the top of the episode talking about the institution of the church. And, and yeah, I guess there are a lot of frustrating things about humanity. And that should be expected to not just be a secular reality, but also an ecclesial 
reality. So um, as far as practical things, uh, I think it's with all, like, you know, the virtue is always in the mean. We always, so with all things, we don't want to fall into great excess and we don't want to fall into, um, into like what a great lack. So I think it's okay to recognize issues in the church, whether they be sort of universal um, and something that is plaguing or difficulty in the church in its entirety, whether that be something particular and local, um, you know, or, or anywhere in between. One of the things though, that I think is, is super important is, um, is to recognize that the church is not reformed, um, by complaining though. Sometimes that, you know, that's not always wrong or bad. And the church is not reformed by our leaving, but by saints, the church has always, if you look back through the history of the church, has always been reformed, has always been changed, has always been, if we can say, improved um, by the holiness of her members, um, by the holiness of the body. So I think that ought to be sort of first and foremost, one, recognizing that the church is the dispenser of that holiness, is the mediator, um, is is that instrument. Um, but it's it's also sort of our participation in that 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 changes and yeah, again, if improves is an appropriate word, improves uh, the church. Um, that too, I think overflows into our ability then to like criticize or, um, or, or um, like levy complaints in a, in a healthy way, in a way that is conducive to building up the church rather than just like kind of taking a sledgehammer to it. So a question of like, well, how does, uh, I think the the church the church certainly in in sort of economic and governance things talks about the principle of subsidiarity that things ought to be done on a local level as they can be and I think that's how we ought to approach things too in the church like most of us don't have influence over like the Vatican no matter who's sitting in the chair of Peter most of us don't have influence in like the 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 um, chancery office of the archbishop or the bishop where we live but we do have influence over over our local community and drawing people in and, and building a community that is, is invested in ultimately growing in holiness and growing in knowledge and love of the Lord. Yeah. And I think when you cast it in terms of the church's holiness, it's funny, we're, you know, kind of, um, making passes at the, the four marks of the church that she is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And we've kind of touched on each of those points in passing, but here, the church's holiness comes into view, that it's not a holiness, which is the mere aggregate of its members. It's not like, all right, church is made up of three people, X person, Y person, Z person. X person is, you know, 1.5 times holy. The Y person is 2.5 times holy. And Z person is, you know, 3.7 times holy. Take it all together. And this, you know, particular aggregate is on average, you know, 2.6 times holy. It's like, no, uh, it's not just that. That's to think about it in kind of reductionistic terms or crassly materialistic terms. The church's holiness is the fruit of the love of her bridegroom, right? So, you know, he says that he will keep her pure and spotless without stain or wrinkle. So in a certain sense, it's irrespective of the holiness of her individual members, though the holiness of her individual members ought to testify to the holiness, which is, which is on offer in the church. So we can think about, you know, our, our growth and sanctity, our life of holiness as seeking better to make manifest or to testify to the holiness of the church, which we have discovered, which we have found, um, you know, which has made all the difference for us, which leads me to another thought. Um, so we've talked about the church as the body of Christ, the church as the bride of Christ. Maybe we could um, kind of 
give some final thoughts apropos of the church as a sacrament. Um, so certainly, again, with the Council of Trent, this idea of sacramentality kind of gets consolidated and is associated with the seven sacraments, kind of by definition and by contradistinction to Protestant um, criticisms lodged against them. Uh, but previously, certainly like in the 12th century and before, sacramentality is a broader concept, which, in, you know, kind of embraces uh, other realities, including, you know, Christ is sometimes spoken of in sacramental terms that we could debate the efficacy of that type of attribution. And then the church is also spoken of a sacrament. So, you know, basic definition of sacramentality that we get from St. Augustine is that the, the sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing which makes men holy. That's true of the seven sacraments. We see that at work. That's true of Christ insofar as Christ makes salvation visible in his very flesh. But what does it mean to say of the church that she, you know, she's a sign of a sacred thing making men holy? What is it, what is it to say about the church that she makes manifest something of the life of God? Um, yeah, like what, is that, what does that spark in you? Yeah, well, I think I mean, we'll have an episode on the sacraments. I think it's next week's episode in, in this Back to Belief series to talk about the seven sacraments, as Father Gregory was mentioning more specifically, and perhaps that would be helpful to have, you know, in the background now, but such is life, this is the order. So um, one of the th one of the things that I guess um, I heard from another friar relatively recently, but something that I've been thinking about, especially in talks that I've been giving is, is that we often hear the 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 phrase that that God wants a, like a personal relationship with you or an intimate re personal relationship with you with me true um, but God also wants you to have like an intimate and personal relationship with his church is what this friar was saying which I found really intriguing and you know I thought of before but the way he put it in those terms was like oh hmm, hadn't thought of that uh, quite like that and I think the the, or the reason there is because Christ in his earthly mission decided to institute the church as as the instrument as the conduit of our of our salvation of our sanctification um and it's it's the life of the church and the relationship of the church as we've already talked about uh the relationship of the church with with christ that mirrors um or shows to us or kind of we can even say prophesies to us uh, the relationship of of charity the true nature of charity and ultimately it's to perfect charity that we're we're all called so um the the fact is is that christ established the church um to to be the dispenser of his life of his divine life but also to be the place where we encounter god um where we encounter him in the sacraments in prayer in community in um in all of those things and others that i'm not thinking of right now but it's it's not just a sort of like handout center but a, a, the you know it is the place where we encounter the lord directly where we encounter him most assuredly um so for those reasons we it, there's a sacramental reality to to the church's you know very existence as simply an encounter with with god and i think you know with that in the background it helps us to make sense of these doctrinal statements which say that outside of the church there is no salvation or you may have heard it in the latin extra ecclesiam nullus salus, because if you just take it at face value, it sounds kind of exclusive. It sounds kind of triumphalistic. It sounds kind of self-congratulatory almost. But when posed in those terms, it's simply to say that, you know, there's no salvation outside of Christ and Christ gives us the church as this kind of extension of his humanity or the, the means by which we experience this, this intimate 
you know, personal encounter with he who has revealed himself in time and space and human flesh and word and sacrament. Um, and apropos of that theme, uh, I think it was Father Patrick and myself recorded an episode on Extra Ecclesiam Nella Salus with that title, which makes it virtually unsearchable unless you know how to spell all those words, which I don't. Um, so you can check that out for uh, further musings on the church. Um, all right. Well, we're coming to an end here. So Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, any final thoughts about the church, her holiness or her mission in the world? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, the church, church is an interesting reality, because in a lot, in a lot of ways, and like with so many things, we can wonder, like, why did God choose to do it this way? You know, why did he choose to create um, and establish uh, an institution uh, on the shoulders of, of men, you know, first on Peter, and then his successors in, in the form of the church? You know, why did he choose to do this way, this way, and we can look through the centuries and even in our own time and be frustrated by that reality. But the reality, but, you know, even more than that reality is, is the fact that the Lord, our Lord chose to offer himself and to encounter, have us encounter him through the church. And there is, um, despite contrary to what the contemporary secular world might say about the church, there's incredible beauty and incredible even um, simplicity in the ability to encounter our Lord in the church. And I think more importantly, an incredible, incredible um, assurance that, that the church is the way to Christ. It is our um, way to, to get to know him, to love him, simply to be with him. We can rest surely on, on that reality. So for me, at least in my personal encounter relationship with the church, that's something that is always at the fore of my mind that, yeah, the, there's no doubt um, about what the church is and what the church is, is doing. Yeah. When I, when I think about, you know, like why God chose this and not that, or why God chose to establish it in this way, you know, sometimes we can just repose on the fact that he did. And so we're responsible mm -hmm. for receiving that rather than for, you know, calling it into question. But I think that you can always find something of the wisdom of God, provided that you're, you know, willing to contemplate the mystery. And in this case, I find it beautiful, like you said, that we go to God, who is a communion of persons through friendship with Christ, you know, which is a kind of communion in the context of the church, which is itself the reflection of that communion or the kind of earthly instantiation of that communion. So we go to communion in communion through communion. So it's communion all the way down, um, which underlines for us the fact that, you know, no man is an island, but each of us is called into love and love always entails the presence of the other, which other is constantly you know, set before us in the life of the church. So, um, as we come to the end of this back to belief series, we'll, uh, certainly continue to pray for your growth in faith, our growth in faith, the growth in faith that comes about, please God, as a result of small, simple meditations like this and some, maybe just some final thoughts. Uh, thanks again to all of our supporters. If you would like to tithe to our work, please check us out at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. And visit godsplaining.org to shop our merchandise and to get dates and information for upcoming Godsplaining events, the three most important of which are the upcoming retreats that we have at the end of July and the beginning of August. So you can find all those details and apply for those at godsplaining.org. All right. With that said, our prayers are for you. We ask that you please continue to pray for us. We're very grateful for those prayers. And until next time, God bless you.